Is government raiding the National Insurance Fund? Has government got better things to do than spend significant time publishing every single Covid grant paid out? And why is government spending so much of your money protecting business from electricity price hikes rather than helping you? Chris Thomas asks several interesting questions in tomorrow's Tinwald and on Agenda we discuss what's behind the questions. Just sour grapes from Chris? Or is he getting to grips with the things that matter to you? Chris Thomas was not able to join me in the studio, but I trust you'll agree this online interview is well worth a listen. Chris Thomas, you, you've got six questions set that you're asking uh, on the, uh, the, the Tinwald question paper uh, for Tuesday. And uh, also you're answering a question. Uh, I... I um, I think it would be mischievous and wrong of me to ask you to, to give us the answer to the question you're being asked, but but you could perhaps uh, expand a little as to the, the, the questions that you are asking. Okay. The first, we can perhaps see them as, as questions in three pillars, to use modern jargon. One pillar is about the National Insurance Fund, and I'm asking the Treasury Minister, what the purpose of that National Insurance Fund is and about the reviews, the Government Actuary Department reviews, but perhaps also the CI65 review and the Mercer review that was behind that. Why am I asking that? Well, basically, I was quite surprised by some language that the Treasury Minister used in a written answer recently when he implied that he was he seemed to be saying that the National Insurance Fund was there uh, to... Uh, handle economic fluctuations in some way and to my mind it's quite clear the national insurance fund there is to provide bedrock for social security and state pensions and i want to push the treasury minister to make sure that he hasn't changed the philosophy of the national insurance fund and and i suppose you know my role is to play devil's advocate um presumably bearing in mind that the, the fund is is the largest fund that government has um, from time to time when when there are fluctuations as the minister might might have referred to them um, dipping into the, the the fund provided it was then topped up in in times of plenty yet shouldn't necessarily be a concern should it well, 25 years on, people still talk about dipping into the National Insurance Fund for the hospital and when that money will be paid back. And the answer to that is it won't now. That was decided uh, a year or so ago. In, re- in more recent years, we've had two or three uh, dips in, if you want to call it that. The first one was we spent £100 million from the National Insurance Fund for COVID responses. And then we spent this year and only myself and the mr speaker voted against it we gave um, more or less carte blanche in advance permission for, host- for health service particularly hospital overspend to be covered from the national insurance fund i was unhappy with that i wanted specific timberwood approval when we knew the facts of what we would be spending Another troubling thing that the Treasury Minister said was that uh, he implied it was the first time that we were going into the National Insurance uh, Fund, which is not true. Um, In most years these days, we actually take the investment income from the fund to to, um, to, to pay for Social Security and hospital expenditure. Look, what I'm basically saying is we have a much larger National Insurance Fund in the Isle of Man than they do in either 
Great Britain or Northern Ireland. We've never made a decision that we want to reduce that like they did in Northern Ireland and Great Britain 20 years ago. And I don't want anybody to be able to do that without the permission of the people of the Isle of Man whose fund it is and, and their representatives, Tim Wood. So I'm putting on the table that I'm looking after the National Insurance Fund unless there's a, a definite uh, a vote in Timwald to begin to to draw it down, as happened in Great Britain and Northern Ireland in recent decades. It's there for future generations. It's there as a bedrock for young people's state pensions and social security for years to come. Seven or eight years ago, people were, were talking about the fund running out. Now we're going in there and using it as a sort of money tree to pay for everything at the moment. That can't be right in my view. And and of course, well, the because uh, I, I did push that the. The health minister on this, uh, I, I, I sort of perhaps rather cheekily asked him the question. So you've been you've been given money for an overspend that you haven't actually overspent yet. Uh, surely that's uh, that's quite an extraordinary gift for any health minister to receive. I mean, he did push back on that and, and pointed out that, in fact, he would only spend what uh, needed to be spent and any other monies that, that had been uh, agreed in principle wouldn't be given to the department. So so it's it sort of has had Timwald approval, this, hasn't it? Well, no, that, no, that's the £10 million pounds you're talking yeah. about, which was, on the, which was on the face of the Timwald order paper. Inside the budget debate, there was a separate item as part of the detailed items that Mr. What, Mr. Watterson and myself voted against, which is actually agreeing in advance that Treasury could use some of the investment income from the National Insurance Fund in future year for um, for the health service overspend as well. So there's a separate item, and that's the one that I'm querying. That didn't even get mentioned in the press at the time, I don't think. And, and again, he, he, uh, you know, the health minister would respond by saying it's an underfund rather than overspend. Um, yeah. I mean, it's a bit bit of a semantic ar- ar- argument, but uh, effectively the... Uh, the, the the review into the the health service uh, identified that the health service is underfunded. So, is yeah. it unreasonable to use the uh, the uh, national health insurance fund for this purpose? Well, forty million pounds each year comes out of the national insurance fund for health. It's not unreasonable, but the, the purpose of this question is to make sure that the treasury minister. Uh, remembers that the National Insurance Fund is bedrock for state pensions and social security. Seven or eight years ago, people were saying that they had to work, people were told they had to work to 66 and then 67 because the National Insurance Fund was running out. Now, all of a sudden, it's having over 100 million taken out of it and it's becoming more and more regular that the investment income is taken out for current expenditure. We've got to remember we've got a very precious uh, reserve in the National Insurance Fund and it's not for... uh, it's not for squandering, and I was, that's what that's what my question is about. I've got two other pillars of questions got, as well. I mean, uh, well, let, let, I'll ask the mm-hmm. questions on this on this occasion. You, you've got your chance tomorrow. Um, I mean, it, it's hard. It, it, it'd be hard to justify the term squandering in relation to the national health, uh, uh, national insurance fund. Uh, I, I mean, it, the the hundred million clearly a one off in in relation to the extraordinary circumstances of COVID. That's hardly squandering uh, the money, is it? Uh, how, well, how, how large actually is the fund now? Um, it's approaching a billion pounds, but that's not the point. We were, were being told six or seven years ago that the fund was running out and therefore we had to work longer. And we, we need a government actuary department review 
um, which is again paid for from the fund um, to, to report, which actually answers these questions in actual, actuarial terms. It doesn't really matter to an extent what you think, what I think, what even the Treasury Minister mm. think. What we need is we ne- actually need the actuarial evaluation. That's what this question is about. It's, I'm asking the question in terms of the operation of the Social Security Acts and have we in the last four or five years put future generations at risk by beginning to spend, like they did in the GB and in Northern Ireland, money that was providing bedrock for future generations and future social security and future state pensions are we making it more likely that what people young people are beginning to say was there'd be nothing left for us mm. to come true yeah. and I, I, it's, it's precious and I, I care about future generations not so much about um about the um the, the short-term politics of uh, of being seen to you know not not to uh, do other things to raise the funds that, that are probably necessary for health as you're suggesting okay um so Moving on then to the other questions that you've got. I mean, you're you're um, you're after the, the the chairman of the Manx Utilities Authority. Uh, what, what what's that one all about? This pillar has got three dimensions. It's very controversial at the moment uh, about hedging for Manx utilities, for and also for Manx gas. Um, we've got much higher gas prices than we've ever had before. We've also got higher volatility, which means the prices are going up and down. Um, I've asked about the policy that's in place because there seems to be acceptance that Manx Utilities denied the chance to Manx Gas to um, to hedge. But there seems to be some uh, disagreement about um, how that happened and whether something different happened this time compared to previous times. So I've got one of my three questions to the Utilities Authority Chair is about hedging policy, and I will be pursuing that to see whether things have changed recently. The other two are about the uh, the impact on two types of customers of the increased prices. The first one is that the Chair always used to say for instance in the budget back in february that 176 pounds have been given equally to all of manx utilities electricity customers through his shielding or the board shielding of 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 electricity customers by using 16 million of um, reserves and the bond repayment fund i don't that's definitely not the case um retail customers domestic customers have got an average 176 pounds but the large industrial customers have got a lot more than that and that's the point of my question i want to find out um, how much more that they have and then i'll, I'll be questioning the chair about um, whether he still thinks it's money w- um, well spent to have actually shielded some of the the big industrial users of electricity like the hospital like the uh, like tesco's like uh, the data centres, like other parts of government, perhaps even pumping sewage around. I'd be asking him whether he really <laughs> thinks it's worthwhile spending that sort of money rather that, than having that, put that, that towards gas customers that, and, that and is the alternative the, energy. That is the, 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 the largest uh, consumer of, of electricity, I think, isn't it? The iris, uh, yeah. the, the, the sewage uh, system. So we'll find out. Yeah, well, that's what yeah. the question's about. And the, other, and the other set of customers are the... Um, are uh, the poorer ones back in 2018 when the pricing strategy was approved by the Utilities Authority? It included investigating social tariffs. Manx Gas has mentioned that it mentioned back in 2017 18 social tariffs. And I'm, I've asked the chair to update us on where we've got since 2018 in, in terms of uh, social tariffs. It could be called something like warm home discount it could be that we've decided to take it forward inside the social security budget but i'm putting the 
the chair on the spot so that he can tell me what the board's thinking is and also I'll be pursuing him about what dialogue he's had with Treasury and the rest of government because as far as I can see Treasury at least in particular anyhow seems to be saying hands off we're leaving it all to the Manx utilities which doesn't seem to me the right approach to dealing with uh, fuel poverty. You're listening to Douglas MHK Chris Thomas chair of the community and housing board. And is this not, and you know, I can, I, I'll, I'll shoulder some of the blame for this. Is this not the, the fault of previous governments that could potentially have uh, certainly mitigated against the worst impact of these uh, very significant uh, fuel price hikes by uh, introducing a range of measures to reduce the amount of energy that we actually use? You know, we've had at least 10, maybe 15 years where we could have been doing this sort of work to significantly improve insulation in homes to reduce the energy usage. Um, yeah. Should this yeah. not have been done? And are you convinced that government's taking it seriously enough to to to, to uh, uh, you know implement the measures that are going to reduce our, our uh, dependency on imported energy? Yes, it should have been done. Um, no, I'm sceptical like you are that it's being done adequately now. And that's why I'm quite angry about this, because £16 million is a lot of money from Manx Utilities Reserves to have spent on one year's shielding of all electricity customers. If it does turn out that £8 million of that could have been used for something else, wouldn't it have been better if it could have been used for a just transition for oil um, burners when they're heating their homes and for gas users or even for investing in alternative energies and more efficient energy homes that eight million has spending it's got an opportunity cost and the opportunity cost is it could have been used for those sorts of things and i suppose you're then moving on to your final uh, pillar of questions uh, mm-hmm. um the the, the, the uh, i think a number of uh, businesses uh, charities uh, such as the one that i'm involved with uh, ha- we're a little bit surprised to receive an email from government saying that the grants that uh, they received uh, you know on, on the various covid uh, grants uh, this was all going to be made public unless they chose to opt out of it which is an interesting interpretation of the uh, freedom of information uh, legislation. Yeah. So I I might go down that line of discussing the meaning of freedom of information and the political messaging, but I think there are perhaps uh, two bigger principles I'm going to focus on initially. One of those is that uh, the government has announced that it's going to publish all of the details of covid uh, scheme recipients, but um, it's not at the mo- moment minded to publish the uh, money they received from the overall financial assistance scheme, which basically goes to larger companies. And to me, that seems odd. You know, why would you uh, publish information to sole traders and people who've got and charities and everybody's got the smaller amounts of money, but not the bigger ones who've got larger amounts of money. So there seems to be a, an unfairness in that. So I'm going to unpick whether that's unfair and whether that's what government really, a government that wants to be seen to be transparent and wants to be transparent, whether it's really thought through. Um, and, and is that possibly, possibly because the companies have responded and said, no, we don't want this information made public. I, fi- 
I'll find out. Or it could be that government's decided that it gets some advantage by keeping that sort of information to itself. Mm. But I'll find out. I have actually been engaging with officers on this. So I, I think I know what the answer will be, but I don't want to spoil the surprise for and, and, everybody. And why, in it. why does this matter, you know, for, for, for the average uh, person on the street who, uh, you know, is, is obviously concerned about a range of, of, of different issues? This, this probably may not seem to be that important. Okay, well, and that goes on to the second point, which is I think Department for Enterprise clearly fluffed the release of the information about um, the payment to politicians of COVID grants, okay? Because as Mm. far as I can tell, the FOI request was just for MHKs who own businesses. So why was a charity's information released? Because Ralph Peak, who's your, uh, who's associated with the charity, I think you're referring to, doesn't own the organisation that you uh, that you and him are associated with, and you know do loads of work and and so on. He doesn't benefit from it. Mm. Why did we go back to former MHKs? The question was about MHKs who own things. Also, why did we include small shareholders and people who were just directors of things rather than actually owned the things of which they were directors? So it seems to me they they went they got a bit out of hand in actually somebody got a bit out of hand in actually giving away information, too much information for the freedom of information response initially. And that goes back to why normal people care about this. Essentially, when you start giving out information, it sucks up resource. And uh, really, even though I am a campaigner for transparency and I took freedom of information legislation through an amendment, you've got to work out what what the value is of uh, of what you're doing. And if we are going to release huge amounts of uh, data about grants that went to huge amounts of people, some of it will be wrong and it will take tidying up. And uh, and what's the point, as you say, you know, why do we need to know that this plumber got that much and that plumber only got that much and so on? Why do we really need to know all of that? So I want balance in all of these things and to get that balance at the same time, another important principle is uh, is fairness and uh, I just think we, it could be that some people involved in this were a bit enthusiastic about giving out information about some previous politicians and some current politicians and perhaps uh, common sense went out the window a bit too much. And, and then I suppose uh, uh, you know, looking at it from the officer's point of view, from the, uh, the, the, the department's point of view, um, you know, they, they you know, the, the desire is to be as transparent as possible. So um, why would you not? Presumably, uh, the information should be held on a database which should be readily, uh, you know, it should be up to date and, and, and accurate. Um, well, let's so, see. Let's yeah. see. You know, what, what, at the same time, you know, if you go... I'm I'm very interested to look at Council of Ministers proceedings. They were published until September 2021. No no details of Council of Ministers proceedings have been published since September 2021. We've got a huge data set of Council of Ministers quarterly statistical and economic report, and that petered out in uh, March 2020. I'd much rather that we had transparency about Council of Ministers mm. proceedings and about the uh, quarterly economic and statistics and knowing what every little small business person got from the COVID scheme. That's much more in the public interest so we've got resources that are short at the moment they're tight and they, they've got to be prioritized mm. and I, i'm just trying to make the department for enterprise minister and officers who've been behind him think about what it is they're getting into because although the, the principle is an easy one to assert transparency it does uh, it does come at, at a bureaucratic cost especially if that database isn't going to turn out to be quite as accurate as, as you and i hope it will be the housing crisis was a massive massive uh, issue at the last uh, general election, which was only six months ago. Um, how, how, how is the government's response uh, working out? I mean, you're, you're the lead man on this. Uh, it, it, are you making any progress? 
I'm the uh, I'm the chair of the Council of Ministers committee that's trying to optimise and uh, accelerate progress around government. So in the end, the current organisational structure is is not very different from what it was last year. But yours truly and his colleagues on the the board are trying to uh, optimise things through publishing an action plan. So. Um, the action plan that will go to Tim Wood for approval, for receipt and approval in May, it is based on the six work streams that were put together before Christmas and published in January as with the island plan. And now we've got dated uh, actions with a responsible government department normally um, responsible for delivering them. So the ones people have talked about, first of all, have been about homelessness and supported living, a concept of housing first. And that's something where DHSC is taking the lead, except that we've we've put together a special project team to work on this intensively for three months to try and get something worthwhile in place uh, over the summer, before the winter at least. Um, imagine, got, um, imagine, imagine I as the questioner here, um, a uh, s- someone struggling to to find somewhere to live um, mm-hmm. at the moment. Um, I, you know, I started off with a maybe a fifty percent full tank uh, of enthusiasm. Um, I'm mm-hmm. now I'm after that your previous answer. I'm down to maybe thirty percent. Uh, what can mm-hmm. you what 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 can you actually tell me, which might actually give me a little bit more confidence and enthusiasm? Well, uh, real <laughs> action that's going to be happening in the in the well, next uh, six months. <laughs> This, this is real action. This, this is real action. So there are all types of homelessness and people perceive themselves as homeless in, in different situations. So the one I described at the moment, if you genuinely are homeless in the Isle of Man, you've got no place to go. You go to Broadway and a, and a church charity rolls out a map for you in the day and the fo- in the night and the following day you roll it back up again and they try to support you to get your life back in place. Yeah. Now we'll have a different system. We'll have a a system within a few months whereby we'll be, we'll be putting people in houses and we'll be wrapping them around with services. So it'll be a more organised uh, system. So that will be something that people will really perceive. If you're a young person or you get divorced or you've got a, another sort of crisis where you need to start out again, the shared equity scheme will be changed if it goes to plan by August. So Department of Infrastructure is working with Attorney General's Chambers to change the thresholds and the um, other terms on the existing shared equity schemes so that it go to Timwald in July so that the new scheme is in place by by August. And then alongside that, we've got a structural review, fundamental review to think about building on the excellent pilot that's gone on in Colby with... um, mid-rent schemes that you and I launched when we were responsible for housing back in 2015-16 to hugely expand that provision because that provides people with cheaper than private sector renting and the ability to save up for a deposit for owner occupation. I'm sure you're aware that the, um, we're working with Manx Development Corporation on um, in as much as uh, they tell us what they're doing. And one of the things that they're doing is that uh, is that they've made a planning application for 37 one and two bedroom flats to be in the old nurse's home in the middle of Douglas. And those flats will be for um, key workers. And I'm actually engaged with the Department of Education in particular about trying to come up with a scheme for key workers, teachers, even for September, October. So there are three very practical initiatives. Another one would be on empty properties. 
you'll remember at the beginning of your time in the House of Keys, there was an empty properties initiative committee. And essentially they came up with some conclusions that would, were, 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 were at the time they didn't need to do some things that they'd imagine they might have to do. I think we'll probably need to go back to those conclusions from 20, 2001, 2002 and actually do them this time because now we've got 6,000 vacant properties, whereas back 20 years ago, we only had 2,000 vacant mm. properties. So I think we're need, going to need to follow that up. Conveyancing is a mess in the Isle of Man, and I'm trying to build on, and again, something that you might remember from your Dolgi days, which is that uh, we made progress previously about changing the conveyancing system in the Isle of Man, and I'm hoping to get that report down off the shelf and put it in place in the next 12 months at least, if not six. So there you go. They're ho- hopefully they're all practical things where you're back up to 70 miles per hour and going yes, hell, yeah. hell, <laughs> and all over the over the mountain at high speed with but, full of confidence and optimism. Yes, my, my tank is, is, is filled. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Paul, for that. <laughs> The Landlords Registration Act had royal assent, um, but is, is, is it actually implemented yet? Is, is there anything happening with it? No, it's not in force. So one of the amendments that I moved that successfully was that it can't be brought into force until regulations are made for the minimum standards and for the registration part and even for the enforcement tribunals part. So those regulations have now got to be uh, worked up, consulted about, and then brought into force before the uh, act can come into force. So there are people who believe it's coming into force at the end of this year. Uh, it, it won't be. We're, we're at the stage now as part of our housing working plan where we've got to uh, to begin specifying those regulations, consulting about them and working out. That's why I was quite surprised to hear the um, landlords uh, talking about um, something going on just, there isn't anything going on except which they would they would they would know about it if there was because we would be engaging with them about you know new standards and new tribunal processes and new registration processes and and the they or the or the, or the someone who would be engaging with whoever with landlords association whoever it may be um, mm-hmm. is is that you through the housing board is it uh, the infrastructure minister is is there some other agency re- responsible for this the infrastructure minister already responded in the Manx radio interview and said it, it wasn't going to be him. Um, it's not us yet. So if things change, we'll take that on. And I certainly am beginning to set up working groups with the permission of the board to begin to take that on. What I'm focused on first is a market solution to this and an industry solution to this. So to me, the absolutely crucial first thing is putting together a, a better system for taking rental deposits And then a system for arbitrating if there's any dispute about paying back those deposits or the use of the deposits. And I believe if we focus on getting that system in place, it will have the uh, uh, intended consequence of improving the standard of contracts around the private rental market. And it will also begin to reduce the amount of argument about it. So that's where my initial focus is. And that's reflected in the action plan and as identified as a specific action. So I hope to put together a working group made up of landlords tenants representative organizations people who know lots about this to actually begin to put in place that such a deposit protection and arbitration system so despite your your answer saying it's not me and it's not him 
Uh, it sounds like you think it might be you at some point in the not too distant future that will be responsible for this. Yeah, it's, it's a, I think it's our fourth quick win. And so we're concentrating before July on delivering the two things I mentioned about shared equity and homelessness. And the third one be emergency loans inside the social security system. And then I regard this alongside empty properties, which is probably the fifth win has been the next thing that we're going to move on to. And I've already talked to people and I've got an estimate about how hard it will be. But once you know how hard it will be, you've got challenges that you can overcome. And that's where we are now. We know roughly, I think, how many deposits there are in the Isle of Man. We know what the interest could be from those deposits. And so we know at the moment, I believe that we haven't got enough money to actually pay for the arbitration that will result. Because at the moment, we've got lots of disputes between landlords and tenants, as you can hear, you, mm. you can tell from observing social media. So through time, the process will be will improve and the amount of complaints will go down and the amount of squabbles will go down. But initially, we're going to have a lot of arbitration to do and therefore mm. you're going to need a lot of stuff. I have in mind that somebody like the Office of Fair Trading could perhaps provide the... Um, provide the arbitration service but we need to uh, that's all the sort of thing that will be subject to consultation and that's not agreed in my borders yet either so the landlords registration act received royal assent when when was that in december in december, in december. okay mm-hmm. so it's uh, it in government terms this is it's, it's a relatively short uh, time for someone to have got a hold of this and done something about it uh, it is surprising though to, to learn that something as important as this the minister who would appear to be responsible is saying it's he's not going to be doing anything with it and the and yourself as as chair of the housing board as yet the housing board doesn't appear to have responsibility it does seem a bit strange that royal assent would be given for a piece of legislation and then there's still no agreement as to where that might you know the responsibility I believe, for, for I can't implementing believe, it. I can't. I can't believe what I'm hearing here, though, because uh, obviously the Disability Discrimination Act was uh, on the statute books from 2006 until it was fully implemented in 2020. I got the impression it was sort of a tradition that uh, you know you, <laughs> we pretended that we'd done something and so on, but it's not going to be anywhere near that timescale. The Housing and Communities Board has got onto this issue. It's got it scheduled in the work stream. We haven't got any staff as yet working under the Housing and Communities Board. The fund is controlled by Treasury. We have to get a department to make an application to Treasury for expenditure and we're a transformation program we're not as yet we're not a board we're not a department with any recurrent we're a transformation program effectively that's quite clear from the fund and so what we've done is we've uh, we're making an application to the um to the fund for a person to work and this will be one of the uh, major projects they will start working on when that person is in place and um and uh, essentially what we'll be doing is, I, if, if, I, if the board agrees it, is we'll be putting together a working group made up of tenants organisations, landlord organisations, general experts involving state agents, professionals uh, and other spheres like that to actually come up with a proposal that hopefully they can all sign off on. So the next stage is of getting it through the civil service and, and Tim Ward will be easier because there's a consensus. It's a bit like how we solve the houses in multiple occupation legislation, you and I working together, because you know that the, the key for that was getting the landlords to accept it and the fire fire service to accept the fire regulations and we did that by engaging everybody and coming up with a compromise and that's what we need to do in this case with the uh, with the um, deposit protection and um, an arbitration scheme and then that I think will lead on to standards in other areas as well because they will be captured inside the uh, the basic private rental contract I think and I suppose if um, if if the landlords association is correct 
you really do uh, need to decide who is going to take uh, responsibility for this fairly swiftly um, because the Landlords Association basically saying that landlords are taking advantage of the high house prices and selling up uh, before the act is fully implemented because they, they, they feel that government doesn't understand their concerns and needs and they, quite frankly, don't uh, fancy being landlords once this uh, act is implemented. Certainly. I'm not saying they're correct or they're incorrect because we would need statistical evidence, which we'll get from the registry eventually about this, but certainly there are landlords who are selling up. I'm told by estate agents they tend to be older landlords who've got three or four properties and they're beginning to think that it looks like it's becoming too much uh, too much for them at their stage of life and they're always a retirement plan and, and so on. So there are quite a few houses that have been let out in places like Balafton, um, Governors Hill, Balakameen, Balabrui, Round Douglas that have been let out for 20 years and are now being purchased by owner occupiers from those sorts of people. Okay, so you know you could argue that's a good thing. You could argue that the 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 one way traffic from houses being rented out privately to being owner occupied is beginning to change. Also, the second point is um, the news and the planning applications to me seem filled with people converting retail office um, derelict sites into new flats so for instance we've got the 37 new new flats in the nurses home we've got port st mary um, marine lab um, sorry port erin marine lab um, development which has got flats in it we've got north key and douglas flats we've got trevelyan guest house on the promenade that's got flats that's got planning application in so it seems to me there's lots of applications for conversions to flats even some tourism accommodation i think i saw somewhere that the uh, the former chief minister seems to be, have applied for his um, holiday accommodation to be converted into residential accommodation so i think there's lots of anecdote that there's lots of people actually um taking advantage of the uh, the high prices to convert things into uh, into residential accommodation presumably for letting as well so i think there's all sorts of things going on and we'll only um, know what's going on um after it's happened to an extent but i do think that all of this leads to the fact that we need better quality um, we're, we're getting probably more modern, better quality accommodation. We're getting uh, changes in the market and um, we need to make sure that the law and the practical arrangements around contracts and deposits keeps up with that. Government's role, uh, if, it's, if it's not for anything, well, I mean, there's maybe there's two roles for government. Uh, one, one is to step in an emergency. Uh, now, all the MHKs who who stood and indeed several uh, people who stood and didn't uh, weren't successful uh, talked about a housing crisis. So mm-hmm. you would kind of think that government should be stepping in if this crisis uh, really exists. And I think there's plenty of evidence to suggest that calling it a crisis may not be an un- wholly unreasonable. Um, but the mm-hmm. other thing that government should do is is. Uh, act as a kind of a moderating influence um, so that uh, the peaks and troughs um, are less extreme. Um, so so is there a role, I mean, presumably the, the Landlords Registration Act has a role to ensure that we have a good quality, well-regulated rental market. Um, is, is, is that an important uh, thing to have in, in the Ireland Band? Yeah, so... In a crisis, we need to have laws and arrangements that deal with the crisis. And the, the biggest gap in that space 
is the fact that we don't have homelessness defined in law and we don't have any of you responsible for dealing with homelessness. So that needs addressing urgently. And I've described that to you. In terms of the market, I, I, I see government's role as a, the regulator, um, as taking put forward policy and law as necessary, and perhaps also setting up a housing association if we need reform in terms of delivery bodies. But um, you know, so that's that's how I see it in the big picture. But that we've got a work stream uh, along those lines in the Housing and Communities Board uh, entitled "How We Work in, in Housing," and we'll we'll know more about that in twelve months' time. To me, dealing with the uh, the substantial issues of real people's lives and real people's homes is more important than than thinking about how we organise it. But I do think we will be changing the balance between how this how the state does it and, as you say, regulation and policy and law and dealing with things in a crisis and more what the state should do rather than getting involved directly and in, um, in providing people with houses necessarily. Final question then. Directly after the election, I think most people on the Isle of Man would be forgiven for thinking that government's highest priority would have been addressing the perceived uh, crisis in, in, in housing. Um, six months on, um, do you think it many people would would think uh, quite so optimistically about uh, how eager government would be to address this issue? Well, I think when they see the new shared equity scheme, they'll see that we've adjusted that scheme in the light of the uh, higher prices and, and, in, and changes to income and, and changes to interest rates. So that's a reflection of the market. No, the Alamein government doesn't have the resources, even using the whole of the National Insurance Fund to affect the UK property market. And the Alamein house prices, property prices do go up and down in line with the UK to, to a significant extent. Uh, so I, I don't know if that's the answer to your question, but... Um, but uh, you know what we're trying to do is we're, we're trying to create opportunities for people who don't have adequate housing at the moment. We've got a work stream entitled Homes Homes for All. Deliberately chosen that title because it goes back to the period after the Second World War when we had this, another housing crisis. And I do hope that with social housing, with um, mid rent schemes, with uh, perhaps with guaranteeing mortgages, working with the banking sector to improve law so they can bring more products here. We can actually make things better across the piece in a realistic timescale for people who've been, have got pent up demand for better quality housing here on the island. Because it's so important for the, the for, for society. If you've got a good home, you, it's so much easier to have a good life and, and a good job and that sort of thing. Is it okay for government to occasionally raid the £1 billion National Insurance Fund? It'll be interesting to hear what the Minister says. Is the government release of COVID grant information excessive and does it set precedents for all government grants to businesses being publicly available in the future? And is the MUA really putting the interests of major electricity users ahead of those of the hard-pressed Manx public? Please get in touch with philgorn at manxradio.com and let me know your thoughts and views on the programme. But for now, I'm Phil Gorn, Goromayo. Thanks for listening.